for her excuse for why, even though she's been a resident of Kentucky now for six years or however long she's lived in Kentucky exactly, uh, she doesn't practice in Kentucky because she didn't want to take a ethics exam, which also makes you ask some questions about their ability to be attorney general when their uh, reason why they can't operate within the state that they're running in is because they didn't take an ethics exam. Um, makes you question about how ethical they are. And welcome everybody to another amazing day, another amazing episode on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. It is Tuesday, July 11th, and today we've got some all important topics to cover. First, we have a ruling coming out over this weekend on Saturday uh, out of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, which does affect Kentucky. But this ruling was to deal with a Tennessee uh, law similar to Senate Bill 150 here in Kentucky. We'll talk about what that ruling means for Kentucky um, because of the fact that we are in the same district of court as that appeals court. Um, we will also talk about uh, Democrat uh, Attorney General candidate Pamela Stevenson currently is not licensed um, to to practice law in Kentucky. That's right. The Democrats uh, Attorney General candidate uh, cannot legally practice law in Kentucky. So we will talk about how this happened, uh, why she allowed to continue to run, how she will continue to run and uh, what she needs to do to fix this and what happened here. Um, and, and we may actually even see a law change from it. Uh, as of July 1st, gray machines are unplugged and off in Kentucky. Uh, we'll cover that law passage that went on and, and how that affects uh, Kentucky, what they have going on in court there, the, the company that operates those. And then finally, um, we will cover what I did to upset the left Last week, some of your all's favorite, uh, favorite, favorite part. But before we dig into that, uh, please, I got to ask you, please, please like, comment, share. Share this uh, with your friends, with your family. Text them the link directly. You know, as you know, you can listen to this in video format on YouTube, Rumble, Facebook, Twitter. And then you can also listen to this in the podcast version on um, Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon, iHeart, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can catch this out. Please listen there. And if you are listening on Spotify or if you are listening on Apple, please make sure you follow the podcast and make sure you leave us a review. Helps out with the algorithms, helps us be pushed up there uh, as far as that goes. And without further ado, Let's dig into it. Let's start off with this ruling coming out of Tennessee. Uh, this was the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. So Tennessee had a law similar to uh, uh, Kentucky's law banning uh, under 18 uh, transitional medications and, and surgeries for children under 18 trying to change their gender. So these are things like hormone blockers, puberty uh, or sorry, hormones, puberty blockers, surgeries, those types of things, all to deal with this crazy uh, uh, transgender type things we have going on. And to, in order to help deal with that, the Kentucky legislature had passed a law, um, mainly because you know they kind of started that ball rolling when the Daily Wire rolled out this story where they had discovered 
the the Vanderbilt University had had a uh, recording where they're talking about what great money they make off of these gender transitional things, and that certainly pushed a, a lot of these legislators to start to say, look, this is enough. And it's frankly, it's ridiculous. We're not going to give permanent life altering uh, uh, sterilization procedures to these these under 18 minors uh, just so uh, hospitals can make a buck. And so they passed a law like we did here in Kentucky recently. But like here in Kentucky, their law uh, was, quote unquote, a, an injunction was put on the credit of this, the, the start of this law. Now, understand this. This isn't the final ruling. None of these are the final rulings on whether or not this is actually constitutional or not. What happens is, is there's an emergency uh, kind of injunction. And what they're saying is, is either A, the, the law needs to be allowed to continue while we challenge it in court, or B, the law should be put on hold while we challenge it in court. And essentially what you have to do, so let's say you're somebody who hates children and you like torturing them and uh, you get your, your kicks out of uh, um, doing life-altering, horrible, awful things to children because you're a piece of garbage. And let's say that's what you like to do. And so they passed this law saying you can no longer do that. So because you're a piece of garbage and you want to keep doing that, uh, you decide you're going to challenge this in court. And what the appeals courts, or I'm sorry, what the courts now rule on as you're doing an emergency injunction to stop this law from going into effect is what do they think the chances are that you'll be able to prove that this, this law is unconstitutional or not. Essentially, they're being asked to make a decision on a pre-decision without seeing a full-fledged argument uh, of, of what do they think the chance of success the people who want to stop the law will have, and then if they believe they have a pretty good chance of, of being able to claim that this law is unconstitutional, they will put an injunction, a hold on the law until the courts have worked out whether or not it is constitutional. And, and a part of that, too, also as well can deal with the amount of um, damage that could be inflicted by it. And so one of the things that we saw with the ruling out of the Tennessee judge was they were saying, like, look, uh, not only do we think this is somehow unconstitutional, and the Tennessee judge had said that they believed this was unconstitutional um, because it was discrimination based uh, a gender discrimination, sex uh, discrimination based upon sex, which is against the Constitution, which is frankly ridiculous because they're not saying, well, boys can have hormone blockers, but girls can't or boys can have testosterone, but girls can't in order to change their gender. Um, they're not saying any of that. They're saying nobody under the age of 18 can access these treatments. And, and frankly, there is a lot of things that you see our legislatures, uh, uh, they make rules and laws on that deal with these same things, whether that's tattoos, alcohol, signing contracts, saying that if you're under 18, you have a different set. The state has a different interest, quote unquote, uh, and, and what happens to you and what that care can be like because it can be permanent and it's something that affects you far past when you leave the care of your parents. And that's something really key, too, to understand as we're talking about what should parents be allowed to do or not allowed to do to their kids. What it really has to do with is what kind of effect is that going to have on them permanently past their initial care as a child? Will this permanently medically disfigure them? Will this permanently uh, affect them in such an irreversible way going into the future? And, and also, too, as well, you know, is this the proper thing to do? I mean, we make laws. And, all, and, and I love when I hear people say 
that, well, you know, you're, you're for small government, Andrew, so you should let parents do whatever they want, parental rights, right? It's like, yeah, I believe parents should stay out, uh, uh, government should generally stay out of the way of parents, but parents are required to take proper care of their children. That is an agreement. I look at it like this. Um, when you have a child, and by have a child, I mean procreate, make a child through uh, sexual intercourse, um, you have entered into a contract to take care of and provide for that child. You willingly agreed to it unless you were otherwise rape or incest, and we can have that different discussion, um, though I personally don't think it's really a different discussion. But anyways, um, um, but you agreed to that. At that time of consensual sex, you had consensual sex, you agreed to that contract. And so therefore, it is now your responsibility uh, to fulfill your contractual obligation to that child. And that means taking care of them. Now, if you're unable to yourself fulfill the contract, you then put the child up for adoption. But you're not allowed to just leave the kid on the side of the road or something like that. You have to give it over to an adoption agency. You have to make sure it's still cared for in that way. And we make laws all the time about that. Abuse laws, laws saying, hey, you got to feed your child or you can be held criminally negligent. And so in that same way, the state has already proven they have a interest in those types of things. So, uh, um, and that hasn't been argued. So really what you would be arguing if you're saying that, Hey, the state can't make these laws is that you, you aren't going to be able to sit here and say, this is a Liberty issue unless you're trying to argue, uh, that parents have a right to, to permanently change the gender of their child, eight year old child. And if you want to argue that, um, well then, Let's sit down and have that conversation because you're going to lose. Uh, you, you are far outside the ability of a person to consent to something. Consent is very important if you believe in freedom and liberty. And a parent cannot consent to changing a child's gender for the rest of their life on behalf of a child. Uh, they're not allowed to do that. Um, and we can have that argument all day long and I would love to. And if anybody wants to debate me on that, please reach out. You can email the show at info at the Once again, that's info at the And I'd be happy to debate anybody on that issue. But more importantly, so this, this judge had made a ruling saying that, uh, they believed it was unconstitutional because it was sexually discriminant. You're discriminating based upon sex against the Constitution. Well, then that goes to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, which Kentucky falls under. So this is a podcast about Kentucky issues. Why am I talking about this? Because it does affect a similar uh, a ruling made by a judge to deal with the Kentucky law because we fall under the same appeals court. And this appeals upheld the law. So they overturned the stay that the lower judge had put on it. And now uh, this this law is being allowed to go in place and enforced in Tennessee. And we have our own lawsuit pending in front of them to deal with Kentucky, not we, me, but the attorney general, Daniel Cameron, uh, also gubernatorial candidate, um, has sued uh, for the right to, to enforce that law. And it looks like he should succeed. We had a lower court overturn it, but now because this falls into the same thing, we should see the appeals a court go ahead, speed that up and allow this Senate bill 150 to also go into place in Kentucky uh, because we fall under the same jurisdiction of the same appeals court. Now, what did this appeals court say? Well, the appeals court is a two to one decision. 
Now, I'm going to go with the dissenter first. The dissenter said that this is settled science. That's what the dissenter said. This dissenter said, this is settled science. Uh, uh, there is so much evidence that literally these kids, unless they're able to chop their their genitalia off and take permanent life-altering hormones, uh, uh, their lives will be ruined forever. And, and this is settled, which is impossible for this to be settled, of course, um, because frankly... Uh, we haven't seen the long-term repercussions of these types of things yet. There hasn't been enough time for that to go in place. There hasn't been enough study on this. It's literally impossible. We don't have generations of children. They make the claims the suicide rates are lower, but it's, it's over what period of time because actually you see uh, uh, suicide rates go up when you look at the longer term, certainly in adults. And so it, this is certainly not settled science. And so the dissenter said this is settled science. And may I remind all you people who believe in settled science, let's consider so-called settled science over the history. Um, let's go back to 1912. From 1912 to 1953, uh, there was a belief that this missing link, so, so this goes back to evolution, and there was this missing link, this, this common ancestor uh, that that kind of links, is, gets us close to the great apes, which are most similar to humans, according to this theory. And there's this missing link that attaches the humans and the apes together uh, and would prove evolution. And in 1912, this so-called missing link was supposedly found and Piltdown uh, in, in Great Britain. And the Piltdown Man is what they were called. And the Piltdown Man um, from 1912 to 1953 was believed to be real and believed to be 50,000-ish years old. And it wasn't until 1953 that it was permanently found out that this was, in fact, a hoax, that this so-called Piltdown Man was comprised of several skeletons, some of which were not even fossilized, that were altered in order to appear old. And uh, one of the jawbones was actually from an orangutan, that the teeth were filed down, that, in fact, some of the bones uh, were... Um, uh, taken apart, filled with gravel, and then put back together in order to make them uh, uh, more weighty because they didn't feel uh, uh, weighty enough because they weren't truly fossilized bones. And for 40-some-odd years, more than 40 years, science believed this was a, a real animal and it was settled science that this was it, this was the missing link. And it turned out it wasn't. But we can even fast-forward medical science. Well, it's in modern age, of course. We have the issues going on with uh, the, old, the old pandemic, right? We had settled science where you couldn't even question, couldn't even question where um, the, the, the virus came from. And the lab leak theory was told to be completely wrong. And now, not only uh, do we find out it wasn't completely wrong, but so-called conspiracy theorist Rand Paul was right that us, the American people, essentially paid in order to create it. And it was leaked out of a lab in China. And these types, and, and, and we can go on, we can talk about things like uh, the shots and mass and everything else, but this so-called settled science, which isn't all that settled. I mean, for crying out loud, we don't even know 
how antidepressants work. We've really literally been describing these things for depression and other sad mental issues, as, as they call it. Um, you know, try to Google definition of depression. It'd be kind of hard to nail down exactly how they define it. But the point is, is we don't even know how antidepressants work. I'm dead serious. You can go search that yourself if you don't believe me. Search how do antidepressants work. You'll see, ah, we don't really know. We think blah, 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 blah. And then what you also see, this so-called subtle science of prescribing these antidepressants, which we don't even know how they work, to people to solve it. Well, actually, we don't actually know if these antidepressants even really work or what their like, long-term effects are. There's starting to be a lot of uh, uh, science coming out that says maybe these antidepressants aren't always so great especially considering what their side effects were. But so-called settled science had uh, said that, no, no, this is all good stuff. And now they're starting to see that maybe it's not settled science. And we could go on and on of describing this. But what the two to one, what the, the people who ruled to allow the law to go into effect, the two judges that ruled for this law to go into effect found was that on this issue, clearly science is not settled. And we need more debate not less. That was in their ruling. They said, we need more debate on this, not less. That means this needs to be handled by the legislature, that this is not settled. And the debate has to take place with the branch of government that it belongs, the legislature, and is within the legislator's purview to make law on this and have that debate, not to shut it down, because that's what would happen. If the courts come in and they rule you can't prescribe these, they are shutting down the debate saying this is settled science. You have a right to this treatment because it only helps you and it doesn't hurt you. But of course, we know that to not be true. Moving on. Oh, and by the way, on that subject of Senate Bill 150, this week, we will be having on Judge John Reynolds uh, to talk about Senate Bill 150, talk about these rulings, talk about it into the future, and talk about how these judges uh, arrived at their conclusions in the first place. So certainly make sure if you're not subscribed, you do. Make sure you're sharing this if you're not, because it is incredibly important. I think that conversation is important. It will be happening this week. All right. Uh, moving on. Pamela Stevenson. <laughs> Pamela Stevenson uh, is the... Um, Attorney General candidate for Democrats. She is a attorney uh, that is a also a state uh, uh, house rep right now. She's been a state house rep for a few years uh, out of Louisville. And this so-called uh, uh, attorney here running for attorney general in, in Kentucky uh, turns out isn't a licensed attorney in Kentucky. That's right. So Pamela Stevenson. So how'd this happen, right? So first, she lives in Louisville, but her practice is in Indiana. She graduated uh, from a university in Indi Indiana with her law degree and joined the Indiana bar there and is licensed to operate in Indiana right across the river from Louisville. Well, this uh, certainly explains a lot about how she why she votes the way she votes on a lot of things. Of course, she doesn't want the person to pay any taxes. She wants these so-called corporations to pay all the taxes because uh, her corporation, her business is over in Indiana, and she wants to move the tax base onto people who, well, she doesn't want to pay the taxes herself. And that explains why she votes and says a lot of things she says and does. But putting that to the side, she, she is operated exclusively, it appears, in Indiana. She has never 
practice law in Kentucky. That's right. We have a attorney general candidate who has never stood in a courtroom as an attorney in Kentucky running for attorney general. Now, you may say, is she still eligible to run? Well, let me read to you what the requirements are for the attorney general uh, uh, candidate here in Kentucky. So requirements for attorney general must be at least 30 years of age at the time of his election uh, or her shall have been a resident uh, citizen of the state at least two years before his election and shall have been a practicing lawyer, lawyer, sorry, at least eight years before the election. However, you also uh, need to be licensed in Kentucky in order to practice. Okay, so it is not a requirement to be licensed in Kentucky to be eligible to win and run. However, it is a requirement to be able to operate in Kentucky courtrooms that you have your law license. So if we had a uh, attorney general candidate that didn't have a license to operate uh, in Kentucky and they won, there would be lawsuits to take place to decide whether or not she could actually even continue to be uh, the attorney general in Kentucky. Every single case that she would attempt to bring Um, If she can't take place in the actual courtroom, in fact, every single time she'd be at the risk of being charged for uh, practicing law without a license. Now, uh, Stevenson says that she's dealing with this problem. And the reason why she's not licensed in Kentucky, even though she lives in Kentucky, is because uh, in uh, Kentucky requires a separate uh, ethics exam. And she didn't have to take that ethics exam when she was in college in Indiana and because Indiana Bar doesn't require that ethics exam. So for her excuse for why, even though she's been a resident of Kentucky now for six years or however long she's lived in Kentucky exactly, uh, she doesn't practice in Kentucky because she didn't want to take a ethics exam, which also makes you ask some questions about their ability to be attorney general when their uh, reason why they can't operate within the state that they're running in is because they didn't take an ethics exam. Um, Makes you question about how ethical they are. Now, she says that she has taken now this ethics exam and supposedly passed, uh, according to her, with a 98% and is in through the process to be admitted into the bar and says she should be a licensed uh, Kentucky attorney by the end of August, which means that if she's elected, she can practice law. But it certainly speaks to qualifications because when you take a look at her opponent, who you have there is, uh, and keep in mind the attorney general position is quote unquote top top. Uh, is is in charge of enforcing the laws on not only just the citizens, but uh, in charge of protecting and enforcing laws even against the federal government and against the state government. And so can protect the citizens is in charge of enforcing those laws. And when you're looking for somebody that can do that and you take a look at Russell Coleman's background, he's a um, was in the military. He was a uh, FBI agent and the Western and then under Trump was appointed to be the uh, Western District, uh, Kentucky, Western Kentucky District Attorney under, uh, for, for federal attorney. And so that pretty much handles everything from Louisville all the way out west. 
And that's what his history is. So he's got years of experience handling the exact same cases, uh, similar cases, the attorney general would in federal courts where an attorney general often has to be, uh, when, especially when defending laws or trying to claim a law is unconstitutional and has that extensive experience practicing this type of law here in Kentucky where they have an ethics exam. <laughs> <laughs> that Pamela Stevenson apparently never wanted to take. But why is it that Democrats found them in this position? I mean, this is crazy, right? If you have, why would you go out looking for a candidate and, and you don't ask the question, are you even able, are you licensed and able to operate uh, and, and practice law here in Kentucky? And of course, the answer is because who wants to be that sacrificial lamb? I mean, the governor's race is competitive, possibly with an incumbent and as such. But what do we see when we're looking at uh, the attorney general's race? Are those races as competitive? Well, if it shakes out the way it did priorly, it's certainly an uphill battle. And as I said yesterday, Andy Bashir, or not yesterday, I think last week, Andy Bashir doesn't want any attention taken off him and his race. So he's not going to uh, be heavily pushing this individual to win, Pamela Stevenson. Chances that uh, the whoever the Democrat was running for attorney general would win is very, very low. So you have a sacrificial lamb situation. I mean, there are so many people not trying to run as a Democrat in Kentucky right now, because it's such an uphill battle that the Democrats are forced to go out and find somebody who's not even licensed to operate law in Kentucky to run to be the top lawyer in Kentucky. That's quite crazy, out of control things. And that certainly shows you the issues the Democrats will continue to have in states like Kentucky when it comes to candidate recruitment. In fact, if you look at their side, every single primary was an open seat primary, but yet the only place where you had a competitive, not even competitive, but the only place where you had an actual primary was the ag commissioner's race. You had, you didn't have two Democrats wanting to run for secretary of state. Only had one. You didn't have two Democrats wanting to run for attorney general. You only had one. You didn't have two Democrats wanting to run for state treasurer. You only had one. You didn't have two Democrats wanting to run for auditor. You only had one. The only place where you had more than a one Democrat wanting to run for something was the governor, which, of course, that was pretty much already decided. And the attorney general and, and not the attorney general, sorry, and uh, the ag uh, cultural commissioner. That was it. That's all. And so I certainly think um, that it, it just goes to show how much desperation they're having going into it. Gray machines. Uh, gray machines here in Kentucky, so-called gray machines because they fall or fell into a weird category. They're quote-unquote skilled games, not much skill to them. Uh, these are these types of basically slot machines that you saw going into gas stations and other places. I say basically slot machines. There's uh, a tiny bit of skill to it, but not really. Um, you know, your five-year-old child could play the games. It is more about chance. Uh, than it is anything else, but they do these skilled games because it gets around anti-gambling laws. And they put them in place when uh, Paramutual Gambling, HHR, came into play. And they said, look, we can, we can take advantage of this Paramutual Gambling uh, situation and your legalization of that. That opens up the door for us where we can operate these gray machines. Well, they passed a law in 2021 session or 2020 uh, uh, um three session this year saying that these gray machines, they got to be, they got to go. They're illegal now. 
officially illegal. And Pesomatic, the owner of these gray machines, has uh, sued on this because, frankly, what they're arguing is, look, you can't give people special treatment under the law. You allow places like Red Mile and Keeneland and uh, um, Churchill Downs and uh, Turfland uh, racetrack. You know, you allow these other racetracks to have these uh, slot machines there, gigantic uh, gambling casino halls, but yet you're not allowing individuals to do that. And this is a weird law that was pat not weird, but put people in a weird position um, because you have individuals who dislike gambling. I'm not a big fan of it, especially while we have so much welfare that we hand out and, and it's programmed to not be there. So, you know, you end up with, with me, the taxpayer, having to pay for your decision making. Um, but at the same time, you do have certain gambling that's legal here in Kentucky. And unless you're going to roll that back, you now have a government protected monopoly, something that I'm sure if you're like me, you also feel uncomfortable with. So put legislators in a very difficult position where either you're forwarding gambling, which you may not like, but at the same time, you may also be forwarding government protected monopolies, which you also don't like. And so Pesomatic is suing on this. Um, they've had some success suing with similar lawsuits in other states. Uh, so you may end up seeing that they, they do succeed or they could fail. It just kind of depends on, on how it looks. Originally, these were supposed to just be fully removed, um, but they can remain in there just unplugged, which provides some opportunity that, okay, if this does, if, if an injunction gets put on the law or they are allowed to continue to operate, they can go ahead and plug these machines back in. So you will still see those in your stores here in Kentucky, uh, in your gas stations and as such, but they will be unplugged or should be unplugged um, as far as that goes. Finally, what I do to upset the left this past week? Well, I tweeted this out. Uh, I said, <laughs> I said, yes, I identify as a 60 year old man, theater cashier, sir, we can, we still cannot give you a senior discount. So obviously I tweeted this out because I wanted a senior discount and a theater wouldn't give it to me. I'm joking, of course. That's not what I said. But we're drawing a, a spot here to point out something very important, that you can claim you identify as something, but uh, does that make it true? And it also points to you have issues um, as you see these transgender issues growing. What do you do when you offer, like you're a bar and you're offering ladies night pricing? Um, what do you do? Because I mean, you offer these, these things that bars offer these ladies nights, these women discounts, because they know that if they can bring in the women, the guys will come, the guys will buy the drinks for the women, yada, 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 so on and so forth. That's how it all works. They'll offer free cover for women, things like that. Ladies nights, but <laughs> a transgender woman or a dude dressing in uh, women's clothing doesn't exactly bring in the guys quite like an actual girl does because, you know, there's not a lot of marketplace out there for people that are into that and therefore uh, shies away. Or if you are into that, there's specific places for you to go to. And so uh, these bars and places, they're going to have issues with how do they how do they address? How do they offer these discounts based upon gender? But I was kind of drawing that out by pointing out we offer discounts based upon age, but people are allowed to identify as anything they want to. In fact, me identifying as a 60-year-old man is more realistic because at least one day I will actually be a 60-year-old man. 
Um, that is something these individuals who are identifying as different genders will never be. They will never be a man just because they say they're a man. And so it actually even makes it more realistic. But I posted this, and as of course, as you can imagine, uh, the left was certainly very upset about what was said. They didn't find it uh, quite as as cute as I did, obviously. But that's to go just goes to show they they can't typically take a um, joke very well. We know that uh, that doesn't surprise us when it comes to the left. Uh, and, and yeah, they were pretty upset uh, about this, but I think it's an obvious example to make, uh, certainly a reasonable position. Um, but I did have this one person who said, uh, you seem to have a cognitive disorder. Um, and, and quite frankly, I, I, you know, I responded of, um, you know, if I was serious, you'd be right. If I seriously thought that I can identify as a six year old man, you'd be right. Now, I said, I'm glad we agree that people who try to identify as things they are clearly aren't have a mental disorder. Um, And then somebody else jumps in there and says, again, this displays a basic misunderstanding of the core components of this situation. Do some research. Don't just go with your gut. Talk to the community you're so afraid of. It will probably bring you empathy, understanding, greater sense of peace, which is preferable in this constant state of paranoia you seem to be currently in. Uh, Understand this. I'm not afraid of transgender people. I know this is something far left people they like to say because they enjoy trying to cascade anybody who disagrees with them as having uh, a phobia of some sort or being afraid. It's not to do with fear. It's that I refuse to buy into your lie. And I do feel bad for individuals who uh, find themselves identifying as a different gender. They have a horrible mental disorder that needs to be addressed, but instead of addressing it and treating it, we are being told that we need to buy into it. Um, this, is like, this is like the difference on panhandlers. I think the worst thing you could do for a panhandler is give them money. I think you are enabling them. You're allowing them to, they're, they're probably on drugs. Um, and they are probably taking your money to go purchase drugs. We know that. Uh, when you have this many jobs out there, it's often hard to see how an individual on the side of the road can't get a job somewhere. I know standards have certainly dropped quite a bit. But anyways, for hiring, um, it should be pretty pretty simple and easy to find even some basic jobs uh, at some places. But you've decided to stand on the road, and you've done that for two reasons. One, you, you probably have a drug problem. Um, and two, I'm enabling you by giving you that money to continue with your drug problem and continue to allow you to, to just have no dignity, right? There's dignity in providing a service, a good, your time to somebody, and then them compensating you for providing good services, for providing something. But just to stand there and say, hand me money, you're siphoning off money. There's no dignity in that. So I believe I have a whole lot of compassion and care and empathy for an individual, and there's a big difference between empathy and sympathy. Um, but I certainly have a lot of empathy for them. I feel bad that they're in that position. But I'm not going to give them money. No, instead, uh, I do things like offer second chance employment at my companies or attempt to set up uh, our own programs to hire and train these types of individuals as long as they can stay clean. Um, those are the types of things that I do. I don't just give them money. I give them what they're actually missing, some tried to, some dignity. And I don't ask the government to do it either. I do it. 
But at the same time, this is exactly the issue that the far left has. Um, they believe that I lack empathy or you lack empathy because you don't agree or you don't want to buy in to a person's mental illness. You don't lack empathy because you don't want to buy into their mental illness. In fact, they are an awful, horrible person. Instead of offering treatment, you are instead offering to continue to allow a person to operate with an extreme mental illness and leave it untreated. I think that makes you a pretty terrible person. Well, guys, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooper Ever Show. I appreciate you all for tuning in. Please, once again, like, comment, share, subscribe. Get this out there. Thank you all so much for joining us. Have a wonderful rest of your day.